More and more badass women are joining the ranks as highly skilled construction professionals. Construction and renovation projects wouldn't happen without the skills of the various crews involved. As we all know, the skilled trades have been male-dominated for like forever. In this season, I'm highlighting the amazing women doing their thing in the construction sector. Every journey and every story is different, but they are all inspiring. Have a listen as I learn about their stories. Hello and welcome again to the All Things Renovation Wit series podcast, where I'm using this platform to talk with amazing women who are doing their thing in the trade sector in hopes that A, people are listening, obviously, and B, that by shining a light on their stories, others will feel comfortable considering a career in the trades. Because if you can see it, you can believe it, and then you can be it. Today, I'm super excited to have Hillary Peach on the show. She's one hell of a trailblazer. <laughs> she is a writer, recording artist, a producer of unusual art projects. She is uh, a founder and the director of the Poetry Gabriola Festival, an, inf an infamous interdisciplinary performance event that presents many Canadian and international artists on Gabriola Island. And the reason she's on the show primarily is for 20 years, she's also worked as a transient welder traveling across Canada and the United States, working in pulp mills, chemical plants, refineries, and generating stations. In 2022, she released a memoir about this time, Thick Skin, Field Notes from a Sister in the Brotherhood. She has a collection of poetry as well, and has released three audio poetry projects, Poems Only Dogs Can Hear, Suitcase Local, and Dictionary of Snakes. Hilary Peach now works as a welding inspector and a boiler safety officer, and is constantly writing fiction. So welcome to the show, Hillary, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, you, make it, you make me sound so busy. <laughs> no, you are. You are. Uh, we all are. Um, Explain so, why I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, uh, for those who are listening and don't know, what is a Boilermaker? And I mean like outside of the cocktail that mixes the whiskey and the beer together uh, <laughs> that we maybe have in a, in a pub somewhere. So boiler boiler making is a trade that um, there's two kind of mainstreams inside the trade. There's fitters and there are welders. And uh, the the boilermaker apprenticeship, BC has an excellent boilermaker apprenticeship, um, is four years, sometimes five years. Uh, it's a mixture of going to school and then going out to work. And it's basically all of the work that happens inside confined spaces and related vessels on um, industrial and commercial plants. So in BC, we work at a lot of pulp mills and sometimes chemical plants. In the United States, there's power generating stations and refineries um, often have boilermakers come in too. So we do the work, the welding and fitting and repair work and the new construction that is inside pressure vessels and confined spaces. And pipe fitters do the equivalent work on the outside of those pressure vessels. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but oftentimes um, you folks are uh, often dual ticketed. You'll do pipe fitting and boiler making. Is that correct? No, actually, it's a huge rivalry. Oh, um, <laughs> I love it. I, I, I met somebody recently that was dual ticketed and they're like, yeah, no, this is like, no big deal. But yeah, okay. Rivalry, fantastic. <laughs> 
Um, so the um, the way the contracts are laid out, everything uh, inside the confines, inside the boiler proper, it be belongs to the boilermakers up until the first joint on the outside of the vessel, and that can be a flange joint or a welded joint. Um, and then everything on the outside of that, the boiler external piping, belongs to the pipe fitters. And so often both um, both trades will be on the same site quite mm -hmm. often, but we're always kind of arguing over that first joint. <laughs> so I know, actually, I do know a couple of people who um, started out in the pipe fitters and have joined the Boilermakers. I, I think it sort of goes back and forth, but but not simultaneously. So yeah, I'm, I guess there are a few, yeah. Yeah, but it's not it's not that common. Okay, well, for those who have a dual ticketed in those arenas, congratulations. <laughs> That's right. So tell me, Hillary, what was your path into the trades? Like, why did you go down this boiler making path? Well, I went to theater school. So, you know, the old joke um, when you tell somebody you're an actor and then they say, oh, well, what restaurant do you work in? <laughs> so it's kind of a kind of a version of that. Right. So I, I did a. I did an undergraduate degree at UBC in theater, and I had worked in sort of experimental theater and performance art forms and performance poetry. So kind of cross-disciplinary forms that combine maybe dance and visual art and language and playwriting, um, just kind of however the project needed to to shape up, I'd kind of go in that direction. But, you know, experimental performance art is not really a thing that is a... It's it doesn't guarantee you're going to have a huge income over the course of your career. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. So, so then I worked with youth, but um, in short, I needed a job. I needed a sort of parallel career that could um, support me while I did these other projects. So I did a, a survey course, a trade trade sampler kind of on the Sunshine Coast, and did a little practicum in a welding shop, and I just really liked it. And I didn't want to fix things, like I didn't want to fix broken things for a living. So I thought, well, I could do this, and then I could also make things on the side, right? I could make furniture and candle oh. holders, and you know, as one does. So yeah, like that. That's how. Excellent. Okay, so um, out of all the other trades that you sampled uh like what were they obviously it was the welding but like was there electrical or woodworking or yeah, anything yeah we did um i think it was, i think it was a month or 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 two it, we're talking about 25 years ago right <laughs> so um but there was a carpentry course we made a little some sort of carpentry projects and there was electrical and um a bit of welding and there must have been other ones, but I can't remember what they were. Sorry. No worries. I just, I just my my question, my follow up question was going to be around: Were you kind of between two disciplines, or was it like no welding, boiler making? That was it for you? Oh yeah, like I did the whole kind of questionnaire. It was through Employment Canada, mm -hmm. which at that time may have even been called Unemployment Canada. I'm not <laughs> sure, but um, it, it, I it was I was needing employment and I did the whole kind of uh survey thing they did like this big chart where all the jobs in the world are on the chart and then they kind of narrow it down so it's sort of like oh science well no I don't think I'm going to go into like medicine and, and maybe law like but so it was like it was a very disparate kind of it was like okay either I'm going to become a welder or a veterinarian or a professor of philosophy you know <laughs> It wasn't like, will I be a welder or an appliance repair person? It was like completely disparate. 
thing. So I said, well, I'll just go and do that. And uh, that sounds like, you know, that sounds fun. I'll go and do that first and then see what happens. So, I mean, obviously you've been around in the trades for a, a, a long time now as, you know, uh, yep. I, I got my ticket way back, like yep. 20 years ago. Um, and I'm curious to know what changes, if any, have you seen around the numbers of entering uh, women entering into the Boilermaker trade? Um, and have you seen any like industry changes over the time you've been working to maybe make that something that was more approachable for for women to consider yeah that's kind of interesting um i actually see a change happening right now like i feel like we're in a moment right now and um i was one of the i was maybe the first generation to go through school that learned standard measuring system and the metric system and i was one of the first generations to go through school where they introduced computers so like kind of Older than me, there was no metric system and there was no computer system. Younger than me, everybody's like, what do you mean you write by hand? Like, what do you mean you sign your name by hand? <laughs> so um, it, it seems to me that that generation before the internet had a fairly closed worldview in terms of where women belong. And and after that, people younger than I am, are are have a have a different attitude like it's just not that big a deal you know if there aren't women in the apprenticeship class now they think it's kind of weird right like oh it was all guys it was really weird so there's usually two or three women in every apprenticeship class now and when i started in the trades there were seven women in the whole local out of like 800 people yeah so so that's kind of cool the so you know people are entering uh retention has always been a bigger issue than recruitment though because hmm. people start out and find that there are obstacles to advancement and there are difficulties in the culture and just a lot of women decide that it's not for them and they move on to something else the women that i know of who are in the trades in their apprenticeship or journey level now um are just killing it they're crushing it they're just fantastic there's this kind of group of super smart capable fit young women who just are owning it and i'm i'm really happy to see that beautiful so going back to when like there was only seven yeah. uh were you guys were you ladies like networking together or was it just like you happen to see your name on a list and clearly it was like you know a, a female named susan or hillary or whomever and you're like did you ever actually get together and and swap no, stories or support each other never never um, you might bump into another person on the job, but again, there was no internet. So there was no Facebook group. There was no meetups and people lived all over the province. So one gal lived in Quinell, one gal, I lived on Gabriola, which is pretty insular in itself. Um, someone else lived in the lower mainland. Uh, somebody else lived in Castlegar. And and the other thing is, just because you're all women doesn't mean you're all necessarily going to be friends. No, no, of course not. Right. So, so there was a geographical disparity, and there's always simultaneous jobs going on all over the province. So, and people are going to be in different places. Somebody might be at the refinery in Burnaby, while somebody else is in Prince George, while somebody else is in, um, in the interior somewhere. So, you know, you cross paths when you did. If there was somebody, another gal on the job, that was. That was kind of fun. If there were three, you could maybe talk them into getting another bathroom going. 
Mm-hmm. But um, but oftentimes I you you know you're the only only one, which didn't really matter because the guys were great, and you just kind of did your thing, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I I've always kind of felt, and I've said before, like skill will win out. You know, like people will will respect skill. Um, you do do your job, you do it well, and like nobody can like throw shade at you at that point, right? You're just you're just doing your thing, and you're showing up well, yeah, one hopes so you know one hopes that that's true <laughs> I, I don't think that that always it always pans out quite like that I mean yeah. and, and like it, it, it's a great it's a great idea I'm not sure that the reality of that I, I think there are obstacles that pop up and it, and sometimes people are you know sometimes there are difficulties even if you are highly skilled but yeah, if you're highly skilled, then you certainly have an advantage. So what sort of obstacles sort of popped up in your in your career or your experience? Um, I don't know, maybe just speak to two or three of them that are most notable. Um, yeah, there are a few in the book. Nothing really noteworthy, I don't think. Like, I don't really concentrate on what the obstacles were. I try to concentrate more on what the positive experiences were, of which there were many. So um, I I didn't want this book to be a catalog of all the times that I witnessed or felt an inequity. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just, it doesn't, it just didn't arouse my curiosity. You know, it wasn't something that I was really interested in. In terms of, since we're we're sort of circling around this topic, but here here's the thing. Sometimes women walk onto a job site, and I would say 80% of the people that you encounter are great. They're great. And I've got great teachers and mentors that I came up through the trades with. I won't deny that. You know, terrific guys, mostly guys, and some women. Um, but there is a bandwidth of, of people who are not so great. And I've, I've recently been thinking about this and it's, there are different levels. So sometimes what, what I would say to somebody going in, who's experiencing this is not to take it personally, that it's, it's most of the time, it's absolutely not personal. And if it is personal, you can tell because they say things like, what are you talking about? Or do you really believe it? How can you say that? Or, um, no, I hate that car. I don't like your car or whatever, right? Like it's it's personal to the situation. So that's kind of one type of thing that you'll encounter. And you'll encounter that with anybody. But then there's also a very s- small number of of men who legitimately don't like women. Like there's that kind of misogynist bandwidth. But it's quite narrow. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, I really want to be clear about this because I think there's a tendency when looking in from the outside to describe that bandwidth as being much wider than it really is. Like, oh, it's a misogynist trade. Oh, there's the misogyny in the trade. It's That's not what it is. That's actually a very narrow number of people. What it is, is that when you walk onto a site, you're sort of you're walking into ground zero of the patriarchy. And since the Industrial Revolution, the working classes have been told that only men can do these jobs. 
Men have been told, only you can do this. Only you can build these bridges and build these skyscrapers and lay down these roads and build these ships and operate these machines and design these machines and engineer this giant thing. Only you, only you can do this. We need you to do this. And that's been a gen, that's a generations old cultural belief system, right? So when you walk in to a site, your very presence there is disrupting that belief system and starts to destabilize it. And the way you can tell if that is happening is that the language suddenly becomes very existential. And they don't say things like, um, oh, I hate your jacket. They say things like, you don't belong here. Yeah. Or they say, what are you doing here? Right? And like if a man said to another man, you don't belong here. That would be a very weird thing for him to say, right? Like both people came up through the same apprenticeship. They both got off the same bus to the site. They go through the gate and one turns to the other and says, you don't belong here. The guy was like, what are you talking about? Right. But, but that's what they're talking about, right? That, that you're actually destabilizing an entire belief system. And, and that's different from misogyny. That's, that's a, because the problem is they've been told this thing sit for a, a few hundred years or more and um it's a big fat lie so just by being there and being skilled and doing the job you're actually you know it's a lie so when they say don't you know you don't belong here well well clearly i do because i'm doing the job and i've been hired and i've been trained and i'm collecting the paycheck and i've got my fob with my card on it with my picture that says i do belong here so you have been misled you know yeah yeah for sure um so I, I hear both of those. I, I hear the different, different differentiation of, of those two things. And I absolutely agree with you. Um, you know, there is a very narrow, I guess, sliver of truly misogynistic men out there. And then the rest are just, not the whole rest, but another slice um, that, yeah, have been sort of brainwashed to a degree. They're struggling. They're struggling with this reality, right? And, and to be and, able to shift and then to not feel threatened and like their job is, you know, going to be taken, okay. all of that yeah. sort of thing. I can see, you know, how, there's, there's territorialism involved. Yeah. There's protectionism yeah. involved. There's a belief that the women's domain is in a different area of life. You know, that, yeah. that that we actually don't belong there. We belong somewhere else. So, yeah, it's it's interesting, you know. So but, and there's also quite a wide bandwidth of men in the trades, particularly now more than since you asked what's changed wow. now more than 25 years ago. There's quite a wide bandwidth of guys who are like, hey, great to see you. Yeah. And who are, who are really kind of open and realize that having that balance of difference on a crew is actually good and who appreciate talent and all of those things. Yeah, you kind of just answered the question I was on the tip of oh, my sorry. Mind. I was like, no, no, it's <laughs> all good. Anyway. I, I was going to ask, like, so what are we seeing now with some of the younger? um generation coming up and like how is that shifted and, and you answered that question beautifully so fantastic um, <laughs> well no, it's, so it's shifting right it's shifting but i mean i'm a part as you are of a number of tradeswomen's chat groups and the stories are still out there it's yeah. the same stories over and over again of things that the so-called obstacles that are you know happening to people where 
a woman who has a years of experience will be on a site and will be training a new apprentice and then find out that the new apprentice has been hired on at $2 more per hour than she's making. Um, that And then that guy will be advanced and she's stuck in the same place. Like all of that stuff is still going on, right? Yeah. I mean, what do you feel the answer might be to to address that? Uh, to address things like inequity and advancement? Yeah. Is it just um, a matter of like standing up and calling bullshit and fighting for more? Or is it something that needs to be directed more through policy and and that kind of stuff? Oh, so, so it sounds so exhausting. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. Um, well, I, I think there's a lot to be said for showing up, you know, just continuing to show up and claiming that space because just just by saying actually i do belong here and you know this space belongs to everybody and so that's one thing that's the kind of on the ground on the ground thing and in terms of shifting attitudes this is what i mean when i say i think there's a moment i think we're, there's a moment right now especially in canada it seems as though corporate culture is starting to recognize that diversity is of value yeah um, and that it adds to an organization so, so I think corporations are kind of going, huh, you know, maybe it would be a good thing to have a woman as a superintendent. Like, like this is only occurring to people now. And you're right though. I mean, that's just going to get, that's just, we're just going to fight that one out, I guess. In, in terms of, yeah. Okay. Sorry. No, you go. No. Your turn. No, no, no. I, I just, I, I, I don't think that there's going to be a, a magic silver bullet that's just going to cure all you know i think it's just it's going to be a and as it has been you know a step by step and as as more and more women enter into the trade sector more and more we're going to hit that tipping point where it's it's just not going to be the same culture and exactly you have to fight so hard and whatever which is partly why i wanted to do this podcast because it's like my little bit of like how can I promote and how can I share the stories and how can we maybe encourage more women? Actually, everybody, because skilled trades are just desperate for people right now, but in particular women, because I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And at a certain point, we're going to get to that tipping point and it, it's just going to be a non-issue. It'll just and be- the more the more conversation, the more dialogue, the more podcasts like this one, the more we're normalizing the idea, right? Because yeah. one of one of the things <clears throat> that happens is that people don't discuss this issue. Because if you're if you're on a site with a crew, like there's a lot of secrecy at different levels on these job sites. People aren't encouraged necessarily to talk about all of the things that they're experiencing, which is why I wanted to um, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. Also because a lot of funny things happen and I just really <laughs> like writing about funny things. Um, but I think storytelling is really, really important in this regard, right? So if, if one person reads this book and goes, oh, my God, I've been there. Oh, my, like, uh, I can relate to this. This happened to me. I had someone say that exact same thing to me. Like, if that happens, then, you know, my work's done. Like, that that would make me very yeah. happy. But, but also the guys. Like, I've got a lot of support from uh, the Boilermakers who are reading this book now. It's just kind of starting to hit the 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 shelves in the bookstores so people are picking it up and they're contacting me and i'm getting a lot of really positive 
feedback and, and the Boilermakers are kind of digging it too. But, oh, absolutely. And I'm realizing that those guys don't necessarily have or see what our experience is. No, you know, and and how can they? Because they're not on that side of it. And any of like the little microaggressions or outright aggression is sort of yeah. over, they're doing their thing and all of that. But yeah, and yeah. I mean, it takes a lot for someone to view something from a different perspective when they're in the middle of it. Like that, that's kind of an extraordinary person, especially when you're just in it and you're just doing it. Right. I love your idea that there's a tipping point though. And I think that will come about by uh, presence and conversations, like I said, but, but if there's, you know, if there's only one person in a group of 60 and somebody says, you don't belong here. And everybody else says, yeah, you don't belong here. Well, that's a fairly believable statement, but yeah. if there's five of you and yeah. someone says, you don't belong here, they sort of, well, really all of us it's yeah. different right it's different and i noticed that too like if there was one other woman on the job then you kind of had an ally or somebody to talk to there was somebody to make eye contact with maybe people were a little more careful about what they said not that it matters but you know there was a bit of behavioral change but if there were three or more the whole world kind of changed right it was oh we better order some smaller gloves we better make sure there's a second bathroom. Like they're actually, it, it's acknowledged. It's acknowledged yeah. that you're there. You 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 you're, you don't necessarily belong yet, but you're present. You're not invisible anymore. It's yeah. not like you don't exist. Yeah. So so we we've sort of just tipped a little bit into hey, you did a thing. You wrote this book, and I have to say, I've been reading it, and it's bloody fantastic. I'm like. <laughs> I, I am really impressed. Not that I'm surprised because I do know you a little bit, but just it's really good. Like, it's all true. <laughs> really good. Like, but just your ability to storytell and you create the scene and it's vibrant. And yeah, I, I just, I've just been really enjoying reading it. So congratulations oh, on that. But um, I mean, maybe share with us a, a little bit more of the why around why you wrote the book. I mean, you did sort of say, I'm, you know, wanted to, tell the story and all that kind of thing. I mean, it's a massive undertaking to write a book. <laughs> so, like, oh, well, you know, it, it's, I wrote, it's what I do. Some, you know, some people crochet. It's kind of my thing that I do. Yeah, so but. it was, maybe, you know, it's it was less of a massive undertaking than crocheting a blanket for me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I should learn to crochet. That would be really, I've always wanted to do that. That's something I've always wanted to do. I got to talk to Nicole. She's a great crocheter. Oh, um, okay. Hmm? So, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I wrote a book. Of, I, I had a poetry manuscript and, you know, 20 years and I'd never published a, a real poetry book. I had some chapbooks and some recording projects and I submitted it to a publisher, Anvil Press, and I didn't hear back for a long time because that's how presses work. And then, um, Brian Kaufman at Anvil uh, asked me to go out for coffee to talk about it. And I said, sure. And I was very, very nervous. And I was convinced he was going to say, um, thanks for submitting, but it doesn't fit our catalog right now, blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, we sat down and in fact, uh, eventually he turned to me and said, so do you want to publish a book? And I went, yeah. And I was really excited. And then he said, do you want to publish two books? And I went, what do you mean? <laughs> he said, well, why don't you write a memoir 
about welding being a because I think people would be really interested in this and I'd always sort of written about work in my other like in poems and in music and I thought huh like a whole book about that wow uh okay and I was just excited and I was like two books yeah two books and then I'm writing two books and then it kind of kicked in and I was like well how am I gonna do this (laughs) turn it over for a while it took a while then I actually changed careers and and moved off the tools into an inspector's position and uh once I got a little distance on boiler making then it all started to kind of gel together I could I could see a bit more clearly how to frame things up it's it's that thing when you're in a thing you can't really see what you're in right it's like a relationship or or whatever I used to joke that I had Stockholm syndrome you know it's like I can't tell any of these stories (laughs) I'll be I'll get in trouble but but I'm you know coming out of that now so what do you see as the measure of success with the book like what is it that would make you feel like job done um, is it like a certain number of book sales? Is it a certain amount of accolade from? I'm not interested really in accolade. I mean, obviously everybody's interested in accolade. There's like, I don't work for approval. And it's like, like, no, of course not. Like, of course you do. But yeah. the thing about working for approval is that you're never going to get it. And if you do get it, you're not going to get it in the way that you want it. So really it's kind of not really a good, a good measure by which to, um, push your activities along right I've learned that a long time ago but um in measure of of success so I used to run this poetry festival that you referred to and this was always a question on grant applications what's the measure of success and I noticed in that in that arena that success is almost exclusively measured by growth that things have to be getting bigger. You have to have bigger budgets and bigger venues and bigger audiences and more people. And, and we were on an island. We're on a little island. There's 2,500 people live there. And I thought, well, is that's not how we wanted to measure success. So we were measuring it by things like commitment to risk and excellence and diversity and flexibility uh, you know, before people started saying things like resilience and flexibility, like we were elastic. I said, we want an organization that's elastic. So, so I think there are many different ways to look at success and getting big isn't necessarily. Um, so that, that's, that's partly why I'm asking, like, what do you, what do you see as well, success? We, like, what would you love to see? Yeah. And yeah. So, so first they, we printed a hundred, we, Brian printed, uh, Brian and Karen printed a thousand copies. Okay. And and I'd like to see it go to second printing. Beautiful. And the way things are going, that could be like next week. <laughs> it's been out for like a week. And it's um it's taking off. People are really digging it. And then I thought, oh, like I would like to have a chat with Sheila Rogers on the radio. So that's gonna happen in January. Beautiful. So so now I'm kind of going, huh. And now people are saying, What um is there a digital version? Hmm. And I was like, Well, no. But I think that we might have a, I'm going to lobby for a digital version because that seems to be a thing. And I'd actually really like to have an audio version, which is going to be harder. But mm-hmm. there are women contacting me saying that they want an audio version so they can listen to it on the bus on the way to work. And so they can listen to it in their earbuds while they're working. So I think that would be kind of cool, right? Because you're in your car oh. or on the bus on your way to the yeah. book and then you get to listen to the book. So it's sort of meta. 
It's yeah. a, I, like, I, I thought, huh, maybe that would affirm somebody's experience if they could actually hear stories about that experience while they're doing it. Yeah. So that, yeah. that would be cool. And then one woman wanted uh, it in Spanish because she said all the sisters in the laborers union in the Southern United States are Hispanic, huh. like in the area where she was from. And I thought, Oh, of course, of course. Like that's yeah. a no brainer. So there's all kinds of things, you know, that like on my wish list. Like I don't know if it's measure of success, but in terms of like this would be cool. Well, I mean, I, I, maybe that is success, right? It, it becomes demand and diversity within what people are requesting. Then you know yeah. that you know there's, yeah. there's there's an appetite for it. Maybe it's just as simple as that. There's an appetite, and that's and that's that's the crazy thing, Brandy, is there's been so much appetite because I guess maybe these stories haven't been told that much. No, but you're also a really good writer and very entertaining <laughs> and the stories are excellent. So, Thanks. you know, if someone was dry as toast, you wouldn't be getting the feedback that you're getting that's so positive right now. <laughs> I, I read a lot. I'm an avid reader and I'm not a literary like critic or any of that kind of stuff, but I love reading. I enjoy reading it and I have really, really... And truly, like, I'm not even like blowing smoke up your skirt here. I'm really enjoying the book. Like, that's great. That's great. I wanted it to be accessible, accessible, um, and I didn't want it to be too serious. And I, there's a lot of things I didn't want for this book. I, I did a, a whole edit where I went through asking myself the question: Is any of this about revenge? Like, do I have any hard feelings or sour grapes left over from anything that happened? And am I doing anything in this book to address that stuff? And if I was, I took it out. And there wasn't very much because I don't think it belongs there. Like, like if I have a personal beef, I did not want that in the book. I just wanted a, a bunch of stories. And then I went through and I took out most of my opinions. Because as you can tell, I have opinions. And I could go on and on about what I think of this and what I think of that. But I don't, I don't actually want to read a book of somebody else's opinions. I want to make up my own opinions. So I, I tried to keep it to stories, you know? Yeah. No, it's, it's so, yeah. I think, I I think you succeeded. I, I, Thank you. I'm not finding either of those two things in there for me personally. Um, so I wanted to um, just ask it. And you can totally decline this. And we did talk a little bit about it um, last oh. week when we saw each other. Did you want to, like, just do a reading? Like, just read a, oh. a book? Um, something like Sure, but I don't have it in my hands. Can you pause while I grab it? So this is a section out of, um, out of a, a longer story called Pennsylvania. I was in a big I was in a big electrical power plant in Pennsylvania. And um I was working with my partner outside in the fabricating tent and our job was to we had these big sheets of stainless and our job was to cut up the stainless and then put them inside the the combustion air ducting where guys were putting it up and welding it in. Then each of the pieces had to be cut. And if there were holes in the ducting, they had to be cut in the right places. And so we were fabricating the pieces and then taking them back into the ducting. But we needed the measurements in order to um, figure out what size pieces to prepare. <clears throat> At first, Durland, and Durland was my partner. He was this great big guy. He was a, a, a giant. 
and he had superhuman strength and he was really sweet and a bit older than me. At first, Derland would go into the ducting and speak with the crew. We had a set of drawings in the tent and there were others taped up inside. They would discuss how to proceed, then he'd write down the measurements and take them back to our tent. We'd drop a piece of steel on the sawhorses and I would do the cut and Derlin would take off the sharp edge with a grinder. I'd weld on the lugs and we'd carry it into the duct together. They were mostly manageable sized pieces that one or two people could move around, especially when one person was a giant. The first time I went in to get the measurements, nobody noticed me, partly because the noise was so furious, the grinders and hammers echoing around the stainless steel chamber. You had to get quite close to someone and yell to be heard, but mainly they were engaged with each other, working or talking, and either didn't notice I was there or didn't care. I finally got some measurements from both crews and went back to the tent. The third time that I found myself waiting around for them to give me this next set of numbers, I gave up and returned empty-handed. I can't get their attention, I complained to Derlin. They're busy in there and it's noisy, but they're also messing with me, making me wait. I didn't get the numbers. He nodded sagely. Get your measuring tape, he said. I'm going to show you a trick. We climbed back inside through the access cutout and stood in the middle of the largest area, two guys working on the wall behind us, two guys talking. The trick was this. Durland held his tape measure at crotch level with his right hand and pulled the tape out about four feet with his left. Then he angled the tape upward toward the top of the wall and started pointing at things with it, always holding it just below his belt. Now you do it, he said, leaning toward me. I held my tape measure in front of my fly, pulled out an arm's length of tape, and started pointing things out to him with it. Now we just point at things and talk and move our arms like we're making decisions about something important, he said, leaning down so I could hear him. I nodded broadly and pointed my tape up at the corner. From there, I said, to there, and that bracket up there, pointing them out with my extended penis tape. There's two of those, Derlin said, pointing his tape at a little cutout on the side, and only one of those. He indicated a bucket on the ground. Suddenly, I could hear him. All the power tools had stopped. The crew had stopped working and were all looking at us attentively. I need the measurements for this section of wall, I said, pointing my measuring tape penis around the perimeter. Chuck climbed down off his ladder with a notebook. I got him, he said, coming towards me. Are you serious? I asked Derlin back at the tent. Really? That's all it takes? I turn my measuring tape into a penis and suddenly they're all ears? Derlin shrugged. They don't know that's why, he said. But if you are holding the big one, they have to listen. They can't help it. <laughs> that's excellent. I love it. It's true. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for reading that. Sure. So. I mean, you being an author is like you're saying, it's like your your hobby, your side gig, and, and you did this 20 years of working in the trades. And I just want to circle back or just kind of come come to completion with this conversation that we've been having because you started as a Boilermaker and this book is fantastic. And But you're also still working. And you said now you are doing a different job altogether not on the tools anymore but you're in in, in inspections so yeah. I, I i love to highlight the fact that people have different trajectories and you don't necessarily always need to stay on the trades or sorry on the tools forever 
So how yeah. has it came to be a welding inspector and a safety officer? Um, and was that kind of something that you were just like, you know what, I'm done on the tools or was just, was this just an amazing opportunity for you? And you just decided to jump on it. I got hurt. Okay. Actually. Um, so this, that story is in the book, but, <laughs> but, um, I had a, I got injured in, in, uh, Prince George. I got a, a knee injury. It's my second knee injury. And I wasn't confident that I had a lot of time left climbing in and out of these spaces and doing this kind of physical work. And um, while I was recovering from that injury, uh, a friend told me about um, an opening with the uh, Provincial Safety Authority uh, as a as a safety officer, boiler safety officer. So I, I went and did the interview just because I was, I knew I needed a change. And uh, I was kind of in a, it was a bit of a crisis because I, well, what am I going to do now? You know, I was in the middle of building a house. I was, it was framed and I had committed to a lot of expense around building this house. And I hadn't planned on just suddenly stopping this fairly lucrative career. So I was uh, kind of at my wits ends, but I, I, I did this interview because I thought I haven't had a job interview in 25 years. I will go and do the interview just to get the practice up. So I went in and uh, people were really nice. And uh, then I, I sort of had to cut it short because I was flying to McKenzie to do a job. And so I was like, thanks. Thanks a lot, you guys. It's been fun, but I got to go. And I just kind of like walked out in the middle of the interview. And while I was in McKenzie, they um, they called and offered me the job. So I just packed up lock, stock and barrel. I lived I lived in a rural community and I I, I packed everything up. and um, and yeah, that was that was that. I moved moved to the city. Wow. I guess my first knee injury was was when I was building the house, and I'd been in it for about five years when I I did my second knee in. Nice. So so then it was kind of like, ah, oh, I just got settled here. But yeah. anyway, back to the city. Now I have a condo and a, a, a fabulous brick wall. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well. I always like to close out the show with a couple of fun things. And, and the first is, um, and this is totally putting you on the spot. So if there, if there, nothing comes to mind, it's totally fine. What if any Boilermaker jokes are there that are just like common and you guys like joke around and it's just like, it's this thing that, you know, is indicative of the Boilermaker trade. Like, oh my God, it's not, it's nonstop. It's nonstop party time. But uh, one thing is that they always throw a pie in your face on your birthday. <laughs> so, like, is that a joke? I don't know. Oh. It, it never happened to me. because on Partly because my birthday's in July, so I often didn't work on my birthday. Um, I wasn't a big fan of that, but that's one thing that they do. Sometimes there's really dirty jokes that go around, like really jokes that I don't really want to hear. So I've got a... Um, I've got a joke that I used to respond with. Like I'd wait, the dirty jokes would go around. And then I, so I actually have a joke. Do you want to hear a joke? I do. Okay. So do you know the one about the old retired Boilermaker on his birthday? I, I bet don't. you don't. So um, what I would do is I would pick the oldest guy in the lunchroom and I'd be like, oh, do you, did you hear the one about Alfie when he was in the old retirement home for old Boilermakers? And so Alfie's turning 90 years old. And he's in the retirement home for old boilermakers. And his friends get together and they say, 
oh, hey, it's Alfie's birthday. We should do something for him. We should do something nice to celebrate. What should we do? And one of the guys goes, I know. We should get him a hooker. And so, of course, as soon as I say the word hooker, all, all my colleagues are like, what? She's talking about hookers? What's going on here? Because I wouldn't normally do that. And so so they decide they hatch this plot and they do this. And, and, and Alfie wakes up on his birthday. And, and about midday, there's a knock on the door of the old folks' home. And he goes to me opens the door and there's this beautiful woman standing there and she's wearing high heels and, and a, and a white fur coat. And she takes the coat and she opens it and she's naked under the coat. And she says to him, I'm here for super sex. And Alfie says, I'll take the soup. <laughs> That's awesome. So, at which point they stop making jokes around me. <laughs> That's funny. They don't think it's funny at all, which is the funniest part, right? The guys yeah, exactly. Don't That's why I'm laughing. It's Fantastic. <laughs> which is the funniest? That's what I think is really funny. It's like, isn't that funny? And they're like, no. I don't it's understand. Like, no, it's just emasculating. It's not funny. <laughs> oh, button. Um, and the second thing I always like to ask people is, what is your favorite tool? Uh, my favorite tool, my anvils. Hmm. I have a I have a little blacksmith shop, and I'm very fond of my anvil. It's almost animate. Like I actually started a captive breeding program for anvils at one point, where I'd lock them in the shop overnight with Donna Summers albums playing on repeat, hoping that I would start breeding them. But they're just too too slow. Like the gestation period for anvils is about ninety years, so I, you know I wasn't going to reap the rewards. <laughs> God, that's hilarious. Oh, you know you are you are you are a fantastic woman. And I so appreciate the fact that you come on. You're a fantastic woman. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and I just, you know, I just, yeah, I, I'm just, you're just badass and I love it. So thank you for all of the, the stuff that you've done in the past. Thank you for continuing to move forward in the, as we roll through the, the present. And I am excited for whatever happens to come to be for you in the future. And yeah, just, we'll, we'll be in contact forever now but well, um thanks brandy and and i i want to thank all of your all the listeners and all of the tradeswomen who've supported this project too because it's it's picking up momentum and it's traveling across the country and i'm so excited for that and it's it's traveling because tradeswomen are talking to each other yeah and i love that all of the questions around how's this going to change how's that going to change it's going to change because tradeswomen are talking to each other I think that's a huge part of the puzzle. So, well, and, and like we were all saying, of it, all of you back in the day, like there was no social media. Like you, there, there was. Yeah, it was really challenging to be able to connect. And now, of course, we've got meetups and Facebook groups and like yep. all kinds of things, and it's becoming easier and easier to connect and to support each other, both through the good and the bad sort of times or whatever. Yeah. And be able yeah. to support someone like yourself who's written this amazing book, and we can all like get behind you and like celebrate that. So. Let's just leave it there. We're we're celebrating thanks. women in this series, and I'm so grateful that you came on the show. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's it's been a blast, and I'm just delighted. It's just been a delight. Yeah, I love Excellent. it. Okay. All right. So for those of you who are listening, thank you. I appreciate it. 
Be sure to check out the other episodes in this series about all of these badass tradies that are doing their thing. And until next time, swing those hammers and uh, keep being badass at whatever career you're in. Thanks for listening. And I hope you feel as inspired as I do. If you or someone you know has interest in the trades, there are many resources, many programs and supports. There's also a ton of women's groups out there specifically for those who are in the trades. We'll list a number of them in the show notes, but be sure to reach out if you're having challenges finding some in your area. We're all in this together after all, and we're happy to help in any way we can.